Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Troy Hosso, and I'm your host on New Books of the American West, the channel of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Jennifer J. Hill. She's an associate teaching professor of American studies at Montana State University and serves as the executive director of the Women's Reproductive History Alliance, a digital museum dedicated to educating the public on reproductive history. Today we're discussing her new, her new book, Birthing the West, Mothers and Midwives in the Rockies and Plains, published by the University of Nebraska Press in 2022. Childbirth defines families, communities, and nations, and birthing the West, Hill fills the silences around historical reproduction with copious new evidence and an enticing narrative that describes a process of settlement in the American West that depended on the nurturing connections of reproductive caregivers and the authority of mothers over birth. Economic and cultural development depended on childbirth. Hill's expanded vision suggests that the mantra of cattle drives and military campaigns leaves out the essential events and falls far short of an accurate representation of American expansion. The picture that emerges in Birthing the West presents a more complete understanding of the American West, no less moving or engaging than the typical stories of extraction and exploration, but concurrently intriguing and complex. Birth in the West unearths the woman-centric practice of childbirth across Montana, Dakotas, and Wyoming, a region known as a death zone for pregnant women and their infants. As public health entities uh, struggled to establish authority over its isolated inhabitants, they collaborated with physicians, eroding the power and control of mothers and midwives. The transition from home to hospital and from midwife to doctor created a dramatic shift in the intimately personal act of birth. Jennifer, thanks for speaking with me today. I do appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right. So first question, I always like to lead off with this one, is how did you come to write this? Well, there were a number of motivations for this book. First of all, as an academic, strategic, looking right about things and research things that not much has been done on. And 
reproduction and childbirth certainly fall into that category. Very little research being has been done. We know way more about Thomas Jefferson than we know about reproductive uses of that era, for example. And so uh, it was an area where there were rich resources and uh, a, a history that really needed to be told. I obviously had personal reasons for it. I think all interesting history has a personal motivation also. And I am a reproducing woman in the American West. I had three kids. I'm a lifelong Montanan. And I knew that, for example, when I uh, was pregnant, people treated me differently. Uh, when I was pregnant, I thought about space and distance differently uh, in terms of access to medical care, things of that nature. So both of those presented motivations to write the book. And then also I um, ran into a number of people who talked about the history of midwifery and uh, told me really interesting stories and no one had ever recorded that. And these people were uh, either uh, old enough to not pass on their stories uh, or have memory of them. And so it seemed like it was an important uh, human event to, to record. So those were the main reasons okay. for writing the book. Okay, well, thank you. Um, so, so I'm actually going to move to, the, to actually my favorite question is, what does research process look like? And, you know, specifically, what kind of sources did you use to write this? And was there one in particular or a type of source maybe that you found most beneficial to telling the story? Sure. Well, this this required a somewhat different methodology, uh, a methodology that is important moving forward. At this point, typically, you know, history graduate students are taught to look at archival sources, a lot of the standard records that we use. But the problem is, is that those records don't always record, well, in fact, very rarely do they record the full expanse of human experience. And so when we're looking at especially groups that uh, are not in positions of power, it's unusual for their stories to be as fully recorded in the existing historical record. So uh, I depended in large part on oral histories because what happened was is that uh, people who experienced childbirth in the American West talked about it. It was important to them. And so uh, when oral historians were recording uh, stories, especially of what you know were termed at the time pioneers, some of the first white people to settle in the region, those people often ended up talking about their birthing experiences. And so those oral histories provided a wealth of information. The methodology that I used, though, didn't just depend on oral histories, but also layered over a lot of data, a lot, a lot of archival sources. So to tell both the personal and the systemic story. I started with oral histories, but then I used diaries, uh, correspondence, but then public health agencies were just beginning to form during the time period I was looking at, and they were collecting a lot of data. And so looking back at all of their resources helped me uh, verify, elaborate, and also put in context all of the oral history information that I had. So it was very much a weaving process, mm -hmm. taking individual and systemic sources to put them together to help understand what the context of reproduction and childbirth were like in Montana and the Dakotas and Wyoming in, you know, the 1860s through about the 1940s. Okay. Yeah, no, that's definitely one thing I noticed. So like, you know, like you said, with when public health 
institution started collecting data, right? It's this very number centric, almost kind of impersonal, even if you're talking about childbirth, but it takes, okay, well, that's part of it. Then how do you plug the gaps? And I think you did that really well with the sources you chose. So, so thank you for that. It, it was a, this, this book was a, it was a real treat for me to read because it had kind of the two things I love the best, the qualitative stuff of oral histories and then just the bureaucratic data <laughs> of governmental agencies. And it, it came together as, as a really good, uh, it was a great read. It was a great read. Um, okay, well, cool. Thank it's you for that. unusual find someone that, that owns up to the fact that they like bureaucratic data. You're an unusual person in that regard. <laughs> well, well, even for me, my dissertation was on an anti-freeway movement. So yeah, I had to deal with the, the Department of Transportation, but then they're on the flip side, you know, folks who are trying to fight it, right? So like, like I saw my project in this one, even though the subject matter was completely different from one another. Um, but yeah, no, no, I love it. I'm also a governmental so historian, so that's what I deal with too now. Yeah, absolutely. The, I think that methodology is a key question, though, because there's so much of history that remains untold. And so often we hear it's just too hard. We just can't excavate these stories. And when we think about it in a more traditional way, we say, well, yeah, you know, these people didn't write a book about themselves. They didn't talk to someone and explain their stories, but they did interact with government agencies. There were ways of understanding what their lives and experiences were like. And so it's a methodology that allows us to get at so much that is untold so it's a, it's a key question yeah yeah awesome okay cool all right well let's um move uh through the book itself and uh, so we'll just kind of start at the beginning and 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 get to the end the uh, best we can um kind of, kind of the first question i was going to ask you and if you could tell our readers was what was the birthing cycle and process like for women in turn of the century montana North and South Dakota and Wyoming. Absolutely. And, and, and for your listeners, what I'll do is I'll actually give a, a brief response to this, a bit of a teaser, because so much of this is so big. And I want to make sure that people get a sense for how this all fits together. So I would say the caveat with all of this is that there's so much more information that obviously I'm not going to touch on. What I would say most critically for the birthing cycle is the fact that we tend to take our present day notions of birth and put it onto what people experienced in the past. It's called presentism in historian circles. And one of the things that we think about now with reproduction is we have a very clear indication of when uh, someone is pregnant. We have the pregnancy test to rely on, and we tend not to remember that that is a relatively recent inter invention. And so for women in this area, uh, back in the late 1800s, they did not know when they were pregnant. And they were also, especially for a lot of rural women, working at very strenuous physical tasks. And so they didn't necessarily have the cycle of menstruation to rely on. Sometimes they were calorically deprived enough that they weren't menstruating. And and so one of the key factors about the birthing cycle or the birthing process was that women spent most of their days in a, uh, a potentially pregnant system uh, they, where they didn't really know if they were pregnant or not. So given that, then, uh, then you also have to think about uh, how they came into this physically. We know that the rates of miscarriage were relatively high, just given the physical stressors that women uh, experienced, but we also don't have any data on that. The, the book includes the bits of data that we, 
that we have, but uh, uh, miscarriage was certainly a, a relatively common experience for women. Uh, contraception was hard to come by. And so uh, you could expect to, if you were fertile and uh, in a uh, uh, situation uh, where you didn't have other complicating health issues, you could probably expect to be pregnant about every two years. And so the expectation both biologically and culturally was as a female, reproduction was a part of your life. And one of the other important caveats to that is we know that a lot of women didn't want to be pregnant, uh, but it wasn't necessarily in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it wasn't something that they had a lot of choice about. It was a culturally assumed role. That doesn't mean they were all yippy skippy happy about it, but they also did not have a lot of resources at their disposal to necessarily avoid pregnancy entirely and also not necessarily to time pregnancies in the way that they wanted. So, you know, reproduction remains the same. It's one of these great uniters throughout human history in the sense that it's the same process as it was 400 years ago, but there's also tremendous cultural differences that shift. So we have a lot in common with uh, people who were reproducing in the American West in the late 1800s. And we also have a lot that's different. And that's what's really fun to explore. Okay. Yeah, thanks for that. You know, one thing I, I it's kind of one of those things that when, when I read it, I guess I was like, oh, I should have known that, you know, just, just the kind of labor, and I'm talking physical work, on a homestead, how that affects yes. women's bodies. That, that was the thing that actually, I was kind of like, the eyes went big and, you know, if you're not getting enough calories and all, if you're running a deficit, you know, how that affects, like you said, menstruation or just childbirth in general, um, that, that was kind of an eye-opening, um, you know, a little bit of a, a data point for me. Um, all right, so let's move on to, to, to the next kind of the follow-on question here is that uh, what kind of experience did women bring to childbirth and kind of how did they earn this experience? Well, this is one of the ways that our experiences now are so very different from historically is the fact that childbirth was a social event. We think of it now primarily as a medical event. You find out you're pregnant. Oh, let's visit a doctor. Uh, whereas that was not at all the case. So a lot a lot of women in this region had no prenatal care whatsoever. That wasn't something that they necessarily thought of, uh, but they had seen a tremendous amount of birth. Reproductive rates were higher, and because it was a social event, this would be something that during the process of a, uh, you would call your close female friends and relatives, and they would come, and they would help the kids, and they would cook food, and they would take care of the animals, and they would stand for all that hard physical labor that you were describing on the homestead. And so even for teenagers, uh, they would have seen uh, a number of quote unquote, normal deliveries. And there's a huge range when we think of normal delivery, what that looks like, but they would have actually seen a lot of births. So by the time you became a woman who was reproducing, having your own children, you would have been actually intimately involved in the process of childbirth in a way that we can't even conceive of now because we tend to sequester uh, delivering women in the hospital and we're not all part of that birthing process. And we don't necessarily have a sense for what is safe, what isn't safe, what should we be alarmed about, what shouldn't we be alarmed about if we are to be viewing birth now in the way that uh, especially women in that time period would have had a sense for. They would have, they would have really known that. So we have just a, a wealth of personal experience that 
women had. And then there were a number of women, especially in this part of the country, so many people who immigrated to Montana and the Dakotas and, the, and Wyoming came from countries that had state-sponsored midwifery programs. So you would have encountered professionally trained midwives, not just women who had tremendous birthing experience, but who would have uh, had school training and practical training. Uh, and so that's one of the interesting things I found in writing and researching the book, actually researching and writing, it goes the other direction, uh, is, the, is the fact that uh, this was not just, I kind of expected a hodgepodge of people who were well-intentioned but didn't necessarily know a whole lot. And so I was very, very surprised by the level of professionalism and expert knowledge that women of the time brought to the experience of birth because they had seen so many births and experienced so many childbirth scenarios. Mm -hmm. So it, once again, it's a very different thing than what we think of. This was a system where it was an unofficial system, but it was a system where women took care of each other's reproductive needs, not just in a kind-hearted way, but also in a very informed, knowledgeable, mm -hmm. highly competent way. Yeah, and, 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 it, and it, as you're explaining that, the the example that popped into my head that kind of helped me understand it and correct me if, if you think I, I'm misinterpreting this was almost kind of like equivalent to a, a barn raising of sort, right? Is that it was a communal event to come in and to, to build it, it, in that case, it was a piece of like necessary infrastructure to run a farm, but it was a communal event where everybody from as soon as you could swing a hammer up until the, the oldest person there would have participated. And so on the midwifery side, right, you may have been fetching uh, clean claws or, or cleaning something as a young child, right? And then then you become of age to reproduce. So then maybe you're past reproduction age and you're kind of leading the leading the effort, right? And so just that was the thing that, again, that stood out to me was just how many people at different ages and experience uh, participated in just childbirth itself. It, it, it it was something again. It was eye opening because once again, I've never, you know, I've never really studied this as a subject matter. But, but just, you know, all that was entailed was quite uh, fascinating to to say the least. Um, Absolutely, and the other thing to remember is the agricultural basis for most people mm -hmm. at this time is that that for men and women, the experience of mammalian birth was not foreign. So, yeah. you know, if you had livestock, you went through that process and you were familiar with mm -hmm. how to manage it, what happened. And so there was far more connection to reproduction and knowledge of reproduction among just the general populace than we have now. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, okay, so the next one is, and you've kind of already answered this a little bit, is can you actually explain what a midwife is? If, if you kind of had a, a concise enough definition, and that's probably a bit of an ask. Um, but then, in this part, we've already kind of touched on it, just how did they come to dominate this region? Um, and then what did a midwife's, um, what, did, what did her job entail when she was called to duty? Absolutely. So midwife or midwifery is called one of the oldest professions in the world. So as long as women have been having babies, women have been helping women have babies. And it's it's been something that has been around for ages and ages and ages. And there has been a long tradition of knowledge associated with it. Obviously, the human population does better when we can reproduce more successfully. And part of that is getting a baby out in a healthy way, getting it acculturated and uh, nursing, uh, all of all of those sorts of things, and also helping the mother recovery and be back to full 
activity level. So midwifery as a as an unofficial profession has been around forever. And, and usually the transfer of that information occurred just person to person. So in a group of people, someone would become known for their birthing skill. They would share that information with other people. And when that changed was obviously with more text-based uh, uh, cultures. And so some of the earliest midwifery records we have are from France that had a really strong midwifery tradition. And there it was identified as a specific profession. And so by the time we're looking 1400s, 1500s, 1600s in Europe specifically, because that's where, as I'm looking at uh, white settlement in uh, the uh, North American West, that's where a great many of the settlers to this part of the area came from. So there was a long midwifery free tradition as a profession. So there was training and midwifery typically included uh, both the lead up to delivery, but then also presence at the delivery and help with that. And then help in the postpartum recovery period. So if you were to say, well, what is the job of a midwife? If we're looking specifically at Montana, the Dakotas and, the Wy and Wyoming in the late 1800s, we would say the midwife sometimes would check in with the woman before delivery, but frequently, as I mentioned, prenatal care was not something that women had the time or the money to invest in, but certainly being present for the whole delivery, the whole birth, and then making sure that the really key part of it was making sure that they helped postpartum to uh, make sure that everything got taken care of and that the mother and the baby were healthy. They would usually, the midwives would frequently stay around for a couple of weeks uh, to help with that process. So in this part of the country, historically, we had both people, women who would help with birth and actually call themselves midwives. And then we had women who were also professionally trained and called themselves midwives as their primary profession and sort of everything in between. So uh, it's, it becomes challenging to nail down who is a midwife and who isn't. Uh, we could say midwives are the ones who help women have babies and usually bring some sort of knowledge or expertise to it. So the, the part that I haven't talked about yet is the fact that in this part of the, of the United States, especially as we look at white settlement, people were geographically very spread out. There were very few large urban centers. So having access to have someone with you during childbirth uh, became a challenge. And that's one of the reasons why midwives were so important in the historical development of the region is they were everywhere. They were also you know, running their own homesteads. They, we had uh, women in closer to some of the urban settings who uh, acted as midwives as their primary profession because they were close enough to so many uh, people that they could make a, make a living from it. So instead of being sort of these uh, very unique individuals, instead midwives were actually spread throughout the population all over. And what I look at in the book is that, is that the, the way that they connected with and cared for settlers to the region had a lot to do with the experience of being a Westerner and the settlement of the region. Thank you for that. Um, and so, so as you talk about midwives, now we start to talk about medical doctors. So, so how did medical doctors enter into this world of childbirth? Um, and then how did their uh, how did their profession run up against uh, the midwives themselves? 
I would answer that both on an individual level and a sort of professional or systemic level, because we have all sorts of examples of midwives and doctors working closely together. So I came across all sorts of records where uh, midwives uh, were, for example, there was a midwife who specialized in preterm babies. She lived in Livingston and she worked closely with the physicians in the area. They would refer uh, babies to her that needed extra care. There was a midwife in Fort Benton that worked closely with the physicians there. So we have actually tremendous cooperation between physicians and midwives on the ground. And that was also very different than what was happening at the national level in terms of how physicians were marketing themselves. So what we see in the, in the history of medicine, and there's all sorts of academics who have documented this, this is, uh, you can find a wealth of information on, on this, is that in the early 1900s, the medical profession very much was seeking to expand its business. And they encountered what the, what the profession of medicine called the midwife problem. And the midwife problem, as they identified it, and the midwife problem, that those words show up in journals and uh, mid and, and uh, physicians meetings, etc. It was not exactly something that was kept private. The midwife problem, as they defined it, was the fact that midwives got more business in childbirth, and they wanted to expand their field of business. And people were very loyal to midwives. Midwives came, they were usually people that they knew or were from their same ethnic heritage, spoke their same language. And so it was hard to get business away from midwives. They were also frequently willing to take, you know, firewood or a pig in payment instead of cash. They kind of had a sliding scale and physicians were not as willing to do that. And so what happened uh, and this is what the, unfortunately, what the, what the historical record reveals is the fact that uh, the profession of medicine mounted a campaign against midwives to basically badmouth them and say that they were ineffective, unprofessional, un-American, and that they did not provide good service. And so we can see, uh, you know, through the 1900, early 1900s uh, into the mid-1900s, how really what was accomplished was a demonizing of midwives by the profession of, of medicine that dramatically changed the way we have babies now. There's still midwives around today, uh, but the overwhelming number of babies now come into the world through the portal of the hospital, as opposed to what would have been true just a hundred years ago would have been surrounded by female friends and relatives at home. And that's a, a, a tremendously dramatic change in a very short period of time, orchestrated largely by a marketing strategy, a very effective marketing strategy, we can say. But that uh, began what was a fraught relationship between doctors and midwives that, mm -hmm. according to some, still exists today. And, and, and to kind of follow on that question, you know, um, and I think this is kind of gets to the kind of a, the, the, the decline of, of the midwifery profession is uh, what role did death play in this whole process of childbirth? And then specifically, how did public health officials who, who were actually kind of becoming a thing there in this era, how did they respond 
to, to mortality in the birthing process. So a lot of public health institutions in, so the like public health, the state health departments in Montana, the Dakotas and, the, and Wyoming uh, came online really in the early 1900s. So 1901, 1902, et cetera. We start seeing the development of public health and they were initiated interestingly enough, here we are coming out of a pandemic, they were initiated to control infectious disease in large part to help coordinate public response to keep the public healthy. And what they did was they started collecting data. And so one of the things they discovered in collecting their data was that women were dying and that there was a tremendously high mortality rate, especially as compared to Eastern states, in this part of the country for women in childbirth. And so this was something that public health officials started paying attention to. Women on the ground actually had been very aware of it because they knew people that uh, couldn't, that ended up with um, mortality, uh, infant death, et cetera, at much higher rates than had been present in, in other parts of the country. So there was a great concern about, well, why, why all this mortality? And the, the reality was is that public health institutions ended up collaborating with physicians. The, the easy answer to, to sort of jump you to the end of the story is that a lot of people came to the conclusion that, that mothers and babies are dying because there's not enough doctors. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Mothers and babies were dying because mothers were overworked. They didn't have the resources that they needed, and they couldn't have healthy, supported pregnancies without health and support. And that midwives were actually combating the uh, death rates by providing contextualized care that went a long way towards providing health and support for for, uh, birthing mothers. But midwives who were not organized and they frequently were immigrants. And so they didn't have as much cachet with public health institutions in the same way that organized medicine did. And so it's, it's a story where uh, women's health suffered, unfortunately, because women weren't listened to and they didn't have the choices that they wanted to have. So, so you had public health, you know, you had the role of mortality in childbirth. So, so this, to me, this kind of noted a, a, a decline in midwifery um, kind of around this time period. Um, so can you talk about that process, right? So what happened in midwifery? Um, and then I think the, 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 the story that you have in your book about Mary Kassmeyer, um, I think she might be a good, uh, I don't know, a way to tell that, answer that question, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. And she's somewhat local for you, given the fact that she was up around Fort Benton area. Uh, and she's she's a she's a great uh, story in terms of seeing how this plays out. So Mary Kassmeyer was a prolific midwife. What we know about her comes to us because she actually had an unusual practice of asking every parent that she'd uh, helped uh, with a delivery to give her a picture of the baby. And an interesting side 
side note, we know that a lot of these uh, parents really valued what she did, but they were also of limited means. So a lot of the pictures that she saved were from children that were two, three, four, five, six, seven years old. In other words, parents took a long time sometimes to be able to have the funds to take a picture of their child and get it to her as a way of recording the births that she helped with. So sort of back to that original question of methodology, this is one of those sources that we have access to through interesting means. So she kept a photo album of all of the babies that she caught, which is the midwifery term uh, in terms of what role she played, she helped. And so uh, she is a great demonstration because she was delivering babies, she was catching babies over this time period when we went from a more collaborative relationship between physicians and midwives and midwives just practicing on their own to the health department push along with organized medicine to get midwives out of the birthing business, basically. So Mary Kessmeyer, uh, she uh, would uh, attend deliveries on her own. She would uh, travel all around Fort Benton out to women who were in the countryside. She also had admitting privileges at the Catholic hospital in Fort Benton. She would deliver babies on her own in the hospital for women who just wanted to be in the hospital. They didn't necessarily want to be at home. And then Mary Kessmeyer also worked with local physicians. And so that we can kind of say, well, that's the starting point. The, there was this kind of mix of she had her own individual deliveries that she would do. She would deliver in the hospital and then she would also work with physicians. Sometimes a birth would be taking longer and the physician wanted to go somewhere. Mary Kassmeyer would be the one on site and who would just call the doctor if there was something more serious that, that came up. And looking at, you know, I was able to, talking, referring back also to numbers and data, take all of those images of those children, figure out when they were born, look at uh, whether she was delivering them on her own or with a physician, etc. and see that as time went on, she delivered fewer and fewer babies. And then her midwifery practice actually stopped entirely at a certain point, even when she was still uh, relatively young and in a position to, to really be needing the additional income. And so if we take the story of Mary Kassmeyer and her involvement in the community, the important role that she played and overlay that with what was going on with public health officials, public health officials were uh, promoting the idea that physicians did a better job. They didn't say that outright at the beginning. Initially, public health officials recognized midwives and physicians as being equally viable uh, care providers. But they, uh, over time, looking at their literature and the conferences they supported and their language and the way they filled out their forms, uh, they very much sort of uh, gradually started preferencing physicians over midwives. And it made it harder and harder for families, for parents to hire midwives because they would also, for example, initially midwives could sign birth certificates. Over time, health departments said, you know what, actually you have to have a physician sign the birth certificate. So even if you have a midwife attend your birth, then you still have to be able to get a physician involved. 
So what happened was, as you had mentioned, it really is the demise of midwifery. We don't have a statement from Mary Kassmeyer saying, I'm leaving midwifery because uh, the, the context is so unpleasant and no one will hire me anymore. We don't have that. And we don't have that from a great many midwives. What we have is a, just a gradual diminishment in people's desire for midwifery care because it was portrayed as somehow uh, less than by public health institutions and by the public rhetoric that the profession of medicine put forth. And one of the things that we have to remember is a lot of white settlers in Montana and the Dakotas and Wyoming wanted to be American. They wanted to be seen as American. They wanted to leave some of their old traditions behind and have their patriotism and their loyalty unquestioned. And so there was a, 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 a there was talk and uh, policy in place that somehow you were more American if you had a physician deliver your baby in an American hospital. And so Mary Kassmeyer's story is true all across the region. Anna Pudio is another example. She was down in Red Lodge. She delivered babies for her uh, whole midwifery career. And by the time she was ready to retire and not be as active anymore, no one was clamoring for her to train them because most people were going to the hospital. And so it was a story not of, uh, you know, uh, putting women in shackles and not letting them help with deliveries, but instead just a steady creeping reduction of demand and making their work less and less available and less and less appealing. So unfortunately, that's what happened. And uh, the, sad, the sad truth is that uh, one of the great scourges of childbirth is called purple fever. Uh, this is what a lot of people uh, died from. It's just basically infection. And that infection is something that happened within the context of hospitals because physicians would uh, examine one woman and then without washing their hands, which was it is protocol now, but it was not then, would go on and examine another woman uh, and transmit infection. And so the great irony is, is that in this big move to create what was called a quote unquote better birth, there were actually skyrocketing rates of infection and death caused by birth in the hospital, uh, infections that couldn't have happened at home because you just had one person attending one birthing mother. So it's it's a sad story uh, in, a, in a lot of ways, looking at how childbirth has changed in that regard. But it's also, uh, there's also tremendous joy looking at all those pictures of Mary Kassmeyer and all the lives that she was involved in, all the births that she attended, the way she was involved in families' lives. There's also a, a tremendous amount of value in understanding what people like her did and how they were so critically important in settling the West. You know, you're talking about that, that gradual shift from midwives to physicians. Even when I was reading the book, I was sitting there thinking, I was like, you know, there's a history of American capitalism in there somewhere, you know, talking about, well, why, right? It's not just a bad mouth thing. There, there's, a, there's the, like you talk about doctors marketing themselves and, you know, hey, spend money here. It's patriotic. It makes you more, you know, stuff like that. And like, like I'll sit here, had the little historian, little spidey sense going on, going, there's a project in there for some enterprising graduate student <laughs> somewhere in the future. <laughs> but, um, 
but no, thanks for that. And so to kind of start to wrap this, uh, get the last part of your book here. Um, so maternity homes, you know, so this is, this was something that was completely as a concept, completely new to me, but, but I found just kind of be just interesting on its face because I love learning stuff I'd never heard about before. Right. So, um, so what were these maternity homes and what role do they play in the birthing process? And then I think to piggyback off what you're just talking about, what transition do they make possible? So maternity homes were something that I was not that familiar with either. I had heard about them, uh, but I didn't know that they were for a very specific time. So during this transition process, as it is becoming less and less common for women to have babies at home with a midwife, and it's becoming more and more common to have a physician delivering a baby, in a lot of rural places across this area, there weren't hospitals, tiny towns all over the place. There weren't designated uh, hospital facilities yet. And so maternity homes, usually it was women who had been midwives or were still working as midwives or nurses, or frequently, sometimes they had had larger families and larger homes. Frequently, like if they were widowed, uh, they had space in their home. They would open their homes up and they would take paying customers. They would basically turn their home into a tiny rest home or a tiny hospital where they just had bedrooms. And so, uh, especially like, for example, a woman who lived way out, very isolated, could come and stay at a maternity home, uh, have her baby there, be uh taken care of and recuperate before she went back to the hard labor at home. And so this was a way for uh, uh, physicians could then come and supervise deliveries in maternity homes for those people that wanted physician deliveries instead of midwifery delivery. So it was kind of a halfway house process where uh, it, it allowed for physician deliveries, not in the home, uh, before hospital facilities were widespread. So maternity homes were actually very, very prevalent, interesting enough with the digitization of newspapers now, if you do a search in newspapers for maternity homes or laying in homes, it's very common to come across advertisements for multiple maternity homes in small towns all across Wyoming and the Dakotas and Montana, but they didn't exist for very long because physicians advocated for hospital facilities. And once there were hospital facilities, there was no need for a maternity home. And in fact, with licensing, for hospital facilities, maternity homes were disallowed. You could no longer see patients in your home. And so it became a, a very important thing to have for a period of time that then disappeared. And so it's something that's left the common knowledge because we just don't know about it any, anymore. Uh, but for a time, it was it was an impor important part of the healthcare system that women were providing. Okay, yeah, it was again. It was I like that photograph you had in the book of the kind of maternity home up on the hill. Um, uh, it, was, it was it was just interesting, but but it definitely seemed to fit. How to put this? Not what necessarily midwives were doing, but kind of a long, almost tradition of using your residential home for some other form of income, you know, e even if it's just borders, but in these cases, borders happen to be women who are uh, giving birth, or maybe recuperating from birth and stuff like that. So see, back to the history of capitalism thing, right? Well, I was 
to say that that fits in very nicely because a lot of these women were ones who had supported themselves and their families frequently yeah. with midwifery work. As mm-hmm. midwifery work declined, mm-hmm. then they could open a maternity home to recoup at least some of that lost income. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that we see a very uh, tr- a significant gap between what physicians charge for deliveries and what midwives charge for deliveries. And so they could make some money by providing the maternity home services uh, as a way of, of getting income. But there's absolutely a capitalist story there to be told. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. All right. So, so let's kind of wrap this thing up here. So um, with all of that said, um, how can this book uh, help readers better understand the American West? Well, I can tell you that as, as a Westerner myself, I, uh, the typical way that I was taught about the American West was that it was this incredibly special place where you could achieve things on your own, where you could go after things individually and through hard work and individual effort, become a champion in your own right. And that mantra is still there to a certain extent. That's something of the Western ethos. And there's something, uh, there are some very laudable things about that, but it's also largely divorced from history in the sense that so many small Montana, Wyoming and Dakota towns are there because people worked together. And one of the key ways that people worked together was through reproductive labor. And that happened to be women who were doing that because we typically don't focus on women in history as much. It's not something we necessarily know about, but this was a critical part of, uh, as the book title says, of birthing the West, of creating uh, all of these spaces that were communities and were homes. People needed places where they knew other people. They knew needed places where there were people to care for them. And that is what the midwifery tradition, this tradition of reproductive care, that's what that provided. It provided not just health care, but it provided a social safety net also because midwives would bring food when someone was ill. They That uh, midwife in Fort Benton that I mentioned, Mary Kassmeyer, she was actually very involved when with, for example, one of the babies that she had uh, attended the delivery, the baby later on, like when she was two or three years old, uh, died, uh, developed an infection and died. Mary Kassmeyer was still there. The baby had been delivered and born, but she was still a part of that family's life. And those are the kinds of connections that actually helped to create community in the American West. And so uh, to understand the story of reproduction is to understand the American West. It's We can't understand the region without understanding caregiving and kindness and connection. Those are essential human elements that often get short shrift much to our disadvantage because that's what makes life meaningful. It was certainly there in our past and hopefully here in our present, and it must be there in our future if we're to survive and thrive successfully. Thank you, thank you. Um, so, so, so last question, I always like to end with this one. Um, so what's next for you? Uh, what, if anything, are you working on right now? <laughs> well, I am deep into another fascinating project uh, in part because 
I love to research. It's a passion of mine. So I have uh, expanded beyond <laughs> beyond childbirth. I'm actually looking at the process of incarceration. And I stumbled upon the records of the Montana State Prison, which uh, have, have not had a systematic review in terms of the female prisoners. So I've assembled a database of over 400 women from 1891 up through the 1970s and am looking at the process of incarceration. And it's been, you know, I'm just at the beginning of the process. It's always exciting. You never know what you're going to find. You don't know what story is there to tell. But it is striking when we look uh, at why people came into the prison system in the early days of Montana and uh, what their treatment was, what their experience was like, and how that was part of a state that was you know, becoming formally recognized. Uh, it's been an, an interesting process so far. I'm just at the beginnings of it. So I'd love to say that I'd have a book out in two or three years, but I think that's probably a bit ambitious given all the fascinating stories that I keep coming across. So yes, there's more to come. I'm, I'm well into something I'm very excited about. Well, good. And that goes back to using those bureaucratic institutional records, you know, it's <laughs> always so a great place to, to always like to always say those are springboards, right? You see a story buried in that data and then it's, well, how do you flesh the rest of it out? So uh, I'll be anxious to read uh, uh, whether it's a book or an article or whatever comes from it whenever you get that thing done. So consider me one of your readers. So. All right. Well, thank you. I'm grateful. All right. Okay. Well, so th that should um, uh, wrap up this interview. And I uh, said, so Jennifer, thank you for your time so much. I do appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book. It's been nice to chat with you. All right. Likewise. Take care.